Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you here today. Thank you for coming, joining us for worship here at Ivy Creek this morning. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please take them out. Turn with me to the book of Genesis and to chapter 25, Genesis chapter 25. If you were with us last week, you'll know that we launched, relaunched into our study of the book of Genesis. And by that, I mean we've already looked at Genesis a couple of times uh, in the past. We looked at the first 11 chapters back a number of years ago as we studied the creation account and also uh, how early civilization took its form. And then later we went back and looked at chapters 12 through 25, particularly focusing in on the life of Abraham. And so now we are going back there and we're going to pick up looking at Abraham's children, particularly at Isaac and his son Jacob and even his son Esau. And in doing that, let me, let me just take just a moment to remind you of what God said to Abraham with regard to his son Isaac. Um, Isaac, you'll recall, was the son of the promise that God had made to Abraham, and specifically he says concerning him in Genesis chapter 7, verse 19, he says, Abraham, Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son. You shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. Now, God's declaration concerning Isaac uh, might cause us to just think that hey, he was the son of the promise. Everything was just always going to go smoothly for, him, for Isaac. I mean, the sun was always going to shine on him. The birds were always going to be singing. Whenever he walked down the path, the flowers would just immediately pop up and show their beauty to him. That's what we might think. It's not the case. I recently listened to a podcast interview of a man named Richard Thaler who won the Nobel Prize for Economics back in 2017. And along with that prize, he took home the nice little sum of $1 million, too, to go along with that winning of that prize. Thaler was asked how winning had affected and changed him. He said, winning made me happy, and it was very gratifying. But then he went on and said this, but you still get flat tires even if you have a Nobel Prize. You still have leaks at home that nobody seems to be able to fix. I think Isaac would have amened that statement. You see, even though Isaac was the son of the promise that God had made to Abraham, and even though, as we noted last week in chapter 24, even though God had providentially overseen Abraham's servant going out and finding Rebekah, his perfectly suited wife for Isaac, even though all of that had happened, that was still no guarantee that things would always go smoothly for Isaac. In fact, as we launch into our study of, of, of this text today, we're going to be made aware of two things, I think, right up front. The first is simply this, that Moses, who I believe is the author of the book of Genesis, Moses tells us about Isaac. What he says to us is very brief in comparison to what he tells us about the other patriarchs that we learn about in the Old Testament. That's the first thing. But secondly, what Moses does tell us about Isaac, well, it tells us that his life story was not filled with sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows. Isaac's life was a lot like ours. And we're going to be able to identify, I think, with that a little bit this morning. Let's begin reading our text today, beginning in verse 19 of 
chapter 25. And I'm going to read down through the end of the passage. Genesis 25, beginning in verse 19. This is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padam Aram, the sister of Laban, the Syrian. Now, Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his plea and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her. And she said, if all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed, there were twins in her womb, and the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So the boys grew and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, please feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore, his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, look, I'm about to die. So what is this birthright to me? Then Jacob said, swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate, drank, arose, and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. It's for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for giving it to us. Thank you for allowing us the opportunity to be able to gather here today to open it up and to read it and to study it. Now, I pray that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are receptive to your word. We pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. So, as I mentioned at the outset, when we consider that Isaac was the son of the promise, and when we consider that Rebecca, she came from good stock, she came from the right family, and when we consider that God had divinely and providentially brought them together, then our first thought is, well, God's just going to bless them with children. And after all, for God to fulfill his covenant promise through Abraham, Isaac would have to father at least one child, right? But alas, rather than fixing baby bottles and changing diapers and getting up in the middle of the night to rock his son to sleep, we read that Isaac, according to verse 21, instead spent his time pleading with the Lord for his wife. Why? Because she was barren. 
In other words, Isaac prayed. He, he poured out his heart to the Lord, asking for God to bless him and Rebekah with a child. Now, if that story sounds familiar, it should. You'll remember that Sarah, Isaac's mother, had also been barren. In fact, she was unable to conceive until she finally got pregnant and gave birth to Isaac when she was 90 years old. Isaac would have been aware of that. He would have known that story. He also would have known that his father, Abraham, had attempted to sort of short-circuit or shortcut that problem that, of Sarah's barrenness. He did that by fathering a child with Sarah's handmaid, Hagar. Isaac knew that that had not been God's plan, and Isaac also knew that the results of that were disastrous for his family. So, unlike his father, Isaac sought no shortcut to Rebekah's barrenness. Instead, he prayed. He pleaded with God, and in doing so, Isaac serves as an example of what all of us should do when, when we have a need, when, when our hearts are burdened, when there are things that are beyond our control for which we have no answers and we do not know how it's going to work out. Isaac's example is a good example for us. As that old gospel song tells us to do, we should take it to the Lord in prayer. Now, what I want you to notice is how seemingly quickly Rebekah's barrenness was resolved, according to verse 21. Now, Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Now, that's easy, right? I mean, that's just like that lawyer on TV. One call, that's all. <laughs> but don't miss the other textual markers in this passage. Notice that verse 20 tells us that Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as his wife. And then, with very little fanfare, by the way, down in verse 26, Moses slips it in down there that Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah bore him two sons. 20 years. 20 years of waiting. 20 years of barrenness. 20 years of wondering. God, are, are you hearing me? 20 years of perpetual disappointment. My guess is that there are some of you in this room that I can identify with that. There may be some of you couples in this room who have, just like Isaac and Rebecca, waited, waited, waited to have a child. Others of you may have had the child, and now you're waiting for that prodigal child to come home. Some of you may be waiting for that right person to come into your life with whom you can spend the rest of of your life with some of you some of you may be waiting on that right job to finally open up for some of you you may be waiting on healing from some physical issue that you are having or that a loved one 
is having. The truth is, we might sit around together and ask ourselves why God doesn't answer our prayers sooner. But the fact is that there are no simple answers to those questions. And contrary to what many of us desire, God doesn't make it his habit of giving us explanations. What he does tell us to do, however, is to trust him. He tells us to live by faith and not by sight. And faith, well, as Isaac's example shows us, faith takes those things and those issues that are beyond our capacity to understand or figure out the answer to and to bring those things to the Lord. Faith pleads with God again and again and again, one year. Two years, three years, four years, five years, ten years, twenty years. In this text, Moses does not make a big deal of Isaac's faith. Nevertheless, it is Isaac's faith that caused him to continue to pray and to plead with God to fulfill his promise. And that leads me to the first point that I want you to note on your outline. The first point that I think we should see is this. Faith trusts that God will overcome every obstacle to the fulfillment of his promise. Faith trusts that God will overcome every obstacle to the fulfillment of his promise. You see, Rebecca's barrenness, even though it lasted 20 years... And even though it seemingly posed an obstacle to the fulfillment of God's promise, it, it didn't. God's plan was never in jeopardy. And what we understand from, from Isaac's example is that his faith trusted that God would overcome the obstacle of Rebekah's barrenness in order to fulfill the promise that he had made to his, to his father, Abraham. And Isaac had known that God had done that with his mother, Sarah. He, he knew that, that God had overcome her barrenness, and so his faith was that God would overcome Rebekah's barrenness as well. Isaac's faith was that God would overcome any obstacle to the fulfillment of his promise. But then let me quickly follow that first point up with a second one because there's a great segue here. The second point on your outline is this. Faith trusts in God's sovereign choice to determine when and how his promise will be fulfilled. Faith trusts in God's sovereign choice to determine both when and how his promise will be fulfilled. You see, I imagine over the course of 20 years that... Isaac wondered when God was going to answer his prayer. I imagine that he and Rebecca had a number of conversations wondering how long they were going to have to wait. And to make matters more challenging, this text provides us absolutely no answers from God as to why Rebecca remained barren for 20 years. However, what we can derive from what we read is that even though Isaac, listen, even though he is this this special one through whom God chose to fulfill his covenant with Abraham. Even though that's the case, even though God had divinely brought Rebekah to him as the perfectly suited, perfectly fitted wife for him, 
there still was no automatic, no natural way to secure the inheritance of God's promise. No, God's promise would only come about as a display of his power. It would all be of God and it would all come in his timing. Therefore, God's sovereign choice determined when his promise would be fulfilled. And quite honestly, as we've already mentioned, God's timing, when God determines to fulfill his promises and answer our prayers, well, that's rarely an easy thing for us to accept. But neither is the way in which he answers our prayer. The truth is, both when and how God works often perplex us. We, uh, we see that in the rest of our text this morning. Notice what happens once God finally does answer Isaac's pleading by allowing Rebecca to conceive. We read in verse 22 that not only does she conceive, but she becomes pregnant with twins. But that's still not all. According to what Moses tells us, the children struggled together within her. The Hebrew text here literally says the children crushed or smashed themselves upon one another. In other words, the twins fought and they crashed around inside their mother's womb. There is not a man in this room who has any idea what that must be like. <laughs> All of you who have carried children and some of you who have carried twins probably understand, at least to a degree, but what we recognize about Rebecca's pregnancy is that this constant struggle in her womb with these two children made for an incredibly painful and traumatic pregnancy. Interestingly enough, the question of this text moves away from when Rebecca would become pregnant. That evaporates from the narrative. Now the question that dominates the, the text is why? Moses writes, and she said, if all is well, why am I like this? The literal translation of, of what Rebecca asks there comes across in a very staccato-like form. Three words, why this I? That's the Hebrew. Why this I? In other words, why is this happening to me? Now I want you to think about it. They'd waited 20 long years to become pregnant. She gets pregnant and then not just with one child, but with two, and the pregnancy's awful. It's just hard the entire time. And she feels as though she's carrying two wildcats in her womb, and she is. She feels as though there's a war going on, and there is. The two boys fight, and they tussle, and they struggle. And all I can think of is that old phrase, be careful what you wish for, because you just might get it. And Rebecca got it. She got two for the price of one, but this was no bargain pregnancy. It was hard. And she inquired of the Lord, why is this happening? I will not ask for a show of hands this morning how often you have asked that question. Why is this happening to me? I won't even ask how many times you've asked it. Lord, why? Why am I going through this? Why? Is this happening right now? Why can't this be easier? 
But as it is with his timing, so it is with his reasoning. You see, God is not in the habit of explaining himself as much as we wish he would. He doesn't go around explaining his reasoning. Sometimes, though, sometimes he does give us a peek into what he's doing and why, and he does that with Rebecca. He responds to her question with a very interesting answer there in verse 23. Notice what he says. Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Now, perhaps Rebecca already knew that she was carrying twins, but if she didn't, she knows now. And what the Lord reveals to her in that first couplet is that the twins that she carried would ultimately father two nations. And these two nations would divide against one another and they would actually oppose one another. In other words, this crashing around that was taking place inside of her was no ordinary sibling rivalry. Instead, it was the conflict of two nations that was taking place. Now, if you'll permit me, let me just sort of fast forward and, 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 and show you how that worked out in, in history. Rebecca gives birth to first son named Esau and, and then the second son named Jacob. Esau's offspring wound up becoming the nation of Edom while Jacob's offspring wound up becoming the nation of Israel. Edom and Israel become arch enemies of one another and their interactions with each other are always bad. Here are a few examples. In Numbers chapter 20, this is following the, the, the Israelites who have been released from their Egyptian captivity. They are making their way toward Canaan. And Moses politely goes and requests of the king of Edom. He says, thus says your brother Israel. Isn't it interesting how he, how he describes himself? Your brother Israel requests this. You know all the hardship that has befallen us, how our fathers went down to Egypt and we dwelt in Egypt a long time and the Egyptians afflicted us and our fathers. And then Moses asked this, please let us pass through your country. We will not pass through the fields or vineyards, nor will we drink water from wells. We will go along the king's highway. We will not turn aside to the right hand or to the left until we have passed through your territory. In other words, Edom, you will not suffer one bit of loss by allowing us to pass through your country. But then we read, then Edom said to him, you shall not pass through my land lest I come out against you with a sword. Thus, Moses summarized it. He says, thus, Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory. So Israel turned away from him. I find it interesting how Moses, even though he's talking about people groups, refer to those people groups by their head names, Israel or Jacob and Edom or Esau. Well, after this, we, are, we see the fighting continue between Israel and Edom. At one point, according to 2 Samuel chapter 8, King David killed 18,000 Edomites and he built garrisons in the land of Edom and he made all the Edomites his servants. But then later we read that the Edomites regained their freedom and they turned on Israel again, siding with the Babylonians who were coming to drive Judah out of their land. And in Psalm 137 verse 7, it records that, remember, it says, Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day that Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. 
tear it down to its foundations. This gives you just a little bit of an understanding of what this conflict that had been taking place in Rebecca's womb was going to look like down through the ages. And this oracle that God had given Rebecca is a very foreboding message telling her about this and what would come. But this oracle was also an unconventional message as well. I want you to notice that according to the second couplet, the, the conventional rights of the firstborn child would be overturned and the roles of those two boys would be reversed. Now, particularly in that culture, the older son was the one who was favored. Given, he was the one given a double portion of the inheritance. He was the one considered to be the family's head when the father passed. But in this instance, the Lord says that the twin who was born first would end up serving the twin who was born second. Now, it should be noted, this is not the first time that God has worked that way in Scripture, and it's not the last. You'll recall that it was Abel's offering that was accepted rather than Cain's. You'll also recall that it was Isaac who was chosen over Ishmael. You'll also remember that Joseph was the youngest of Jacob's sons and he was chosen over his older brothers. David was the youngest of Jesse's sons and he was chosen over his older brothers to be the king of Israel. What that tells us is that God is not confined to the conventional order of nature to bring about his plan and to show his grace. In other words, how God goes about bringing his will to pass and fulfilling his promise is up to him. God demonstrates his grace in the way that he chooses. He is God. He is the sovereign ruler over this universe. He is the maker of everything seen and unseen. As the prophet Daniel reminds us, he is the Most High who rules over the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. I'm sure that the Lord's oracle, though, was quite disturbing, if not overwhelming, for Rebekah and ultimately for Isaac. It told them that the war that raged in Rebekah's womb was not only the beginning of a conflict that would last down through the ages, but it also told them that God was going to overthrow the culturally accepted norms and patterns to accomplish his will. Now, in the context of everything that, that Isaac and Rebekah knew about God and about his promises, particularly to Abraham, and that, that what that meant certainly was that in this oracle, God is stating that he would fulfill his promise of blessing all of the nations of the earth through the seed of Abraham, that had been his promise. I'm going to do that through the younger son, not the older. And therefore, this oracle makes very clear that the promised blessing, the Savior who would come through the offspring of Abraham and Isaac would ultimately come through Jacob, the younger son, not the older. And what this text makes clear to us is that that was God's divine and sovereign choice. He not only determined when, but he determined how he would fulfill his promise. And why this is so important is because it points to the necessity of faith. You see, in the New Testament, when the Apostle Paul wanted to impress upon his fellow Jews that simply being born a Jew was not an automatic means of their salvation, that, that God didn't show favoritism because of birthright or because of anything that somebody had done or didn't do as an individual, he pointed to this exact episode in history. 
In Romans chapter 9, verses 10 through 13, the Apostle Paul writes this. Not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now, Paul's point is that the favor shown to Jacob over Esau was not based upon anything Jacob had done. It was not based upon his, his moral virtues. It was not based upon any of his good works. We know this because Paul makes clear that the two boys had not even been born when this oracle was given and God's plan was made known. So neither Jacob nor any of his offspring who benefited from being one of God's chosen people could boast about anything they had done to deserve God's favor. God's covenant blessing and sovereign grace came not because of their birth order or social standing or giftedness or moral, moral virtue or anything else that could be self-generated. Rather, it was all of grace. And so it is this, this display of God's grace. It's display of his sovereign grace by which he sovereignly chooses both when and how his promise will be fulfilled that necessitates our faith. In fact, Paul goes on to argue for that specific thing, the absolute necessity of faith in Romans chapter 9. He says that all people everywhere, regardless of whether they're offspring of Jacob or not, have to exhibit faith. Romans chapter 9 verses 30 through 32 says this, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness even through the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why, he asks. Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. As the old phrase puts it, God has no grandchildren. In other words, you don't automatically gain his favor and his blessing because of what you do, or to whom you are born. Each and every one of us must come to God by faith, trusting in his one and only promise, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in this text so far, we have seen that faith trusts that God will overcome every obstacle to the fulfillment of his promise. And we've seen that faith trusts in God's sovereign choice to determine both when and how his promise will be fulfilled. That leads me then to the last point that I want you to see this morning. The, the final point on your outline is this. Faith desires to become an heir to God's promise and receive his blessing. Moses goes on to describe not only an unusual pregnancy, but an unusual birth. I imagine that by this point, two children fighting and crashing around in her womb, Rebecca was more than ready to give birth. And she did. And when she did, the first one that came out of her was red-skinned and hairy all over. Which is why they named him Esau. 
Esau typically is an understanding that the, the word is very similar to the Hebrew word for hairy. And it also is kind of like having the word for red sort of smashed in on top of it. And so because he was both red and hairy, they named him Esau. So he comes out first, but then right behind him, this tiny little hand is clutching onto the red heel of his brother. And out then comes this second child who, because he was clutching the heel of his brother, was given a name that originally meant or sounded like heel in the Hebrew and actually had the first connotation of being somebody who was a protector, somebody who would come along behind someone to be their protector. But because of the way that Isaac responded and acted toward his brother, the name the name, excuse me, Jacob, the, the name Jacob became understood as, as one who supplants or one who deceives. So Moses goes on to say that these two boys come out and then he tells us that they couldn't have been any more different. We don't know anything of their childhood. You notice how fast Moses just moves over that? He doesn't even tell us about what they were like as kids. He goes straight to what they were like as adults. And in verse 27, he says, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a mild man, dwelling in tents. One preacher attempted to, to kind of capture the difference between the two boys this way. He said Esau was the jock. He had a hairy chest and liked to hunt. He was an extrovert, drove a pickup truck, and watched NASCAR. <laughs> Jacob was a quiet, a bit nerdy, a quiet boy, a bit nerdy, and a homebody. He was an introvert, drove a Prius, and watched Rachel Ray on the Food Network. Any of you who've got more than one kid know that they don't come out exactly the same. They're different. They're sometimes different as night and day. These two could not have been any different from one another. What we do learn, though, though, is that, that Isaac, he was taken with Esau. He just naturally loved Esau. And you want to know why? Because he loved wild game. Esau was a hunter. Isaac loved to eat wild game. Rebecca, on the other hand, favored Jacob because spent more time in and around the tents and interacting with her. And at this point, we could talk about the dangers of favoring one child over another and how such actions could have a negative impact on the kid's psyche and, and their well-being. What I want you to note that comes from this passage, however, is that Moses is foreshadowing for us what is going to come. You see, Isaac would ultimately be deceived by his taste for wild game. We'll see that in a in a future episode. But we're also going to see that Rebecca would end up seeing her stay-at-home mama's boy propelled far, far away from her into a foreign country. The real differences between Jacob and Esau, they are shown in their interaction that occurred one day after Esau had been out hunting. He'd come home empty-handed. He was likely frustrated and aggravated and hungry and hot and tired. And he came in and Jacob is there and he's cooked some stew. And Esau came in, he was famished, and Kent Hughes notes that in the Hebrew, Esau probably spoke like the coarse ruffian that he was. He says, literally, please let me swallow some of that red stuff, that, that red stuff. He repeats it twice. Let me swallow some of that red stuff because I'm exhausted. Moses tells us that it is because Esau loved the red stuff that he really got the name Edom, which Sounds very close to the term red in Hebrew. While Esau sounds like a mountain man who just sort of grunts out his words, Jacob, on the other hand, comes off as cool and calculating 
One put it this way, Esau may have been a skillful hunter and a man of the field, but in this story, Esau is the prey, and he is outskilled by his brother who goes hunting for his birthright. Esau is tired and hungry, and so he's at a disadvantage. Jacob cunningly sees his opportunity and says to Esau, sell me your birthright as of this day. Now, Jacob just comes off as this opportunist. He comes off as this ambitious, self-serving, self-gratifying, grasping, scheming. He's still got his hand out there wanting to grab on to Esau even now in adulthood. And the truth is, side by side, we might favor Esau over Jacob. But the fact of the matter is, neither one of them come off very good in this text. Jacob caught his brother in a vulnerable moment and pounced on him. Esau, on the other hand, who from all that we can gather lived for the moment, said to Jacob, I'm about to die. What good is this birthright to me? So Jacob made Esau swear that he would trade his birthright for the bowl of stew. And then when he did, Jacob gave him the stew. And then notice the way that Moses finishes the passage in a very staccato-like way. He says, Esau ate, drank, rose, went his way. Ate, drank, rose, left. Then he adds this final commentary. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Clearly Esau was a man who was driven by his appetites. He was someone who was willing to exchange that which was rightfully his by birth for a brief moment of pleasure and satisfaction. And the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 16 groups Esau in with the fornicators and the godless and the profane of this world. And he says that is the case because for one morsel of food he sold his birthright. Here's the point that I want to end with today. Neither Esau nor Isaac Excuse me, not Esau or Jacob come off as good guys in this story. And you want to know why they don't come off as good guys? Because they're not good guys. They were sinners, just like you and just like me. And while there is much more that we can say about these two, and we'll get to discuss them more in future episodes, Lord willing, what truthfully differentiates them in this passage is that is it's Jacob's desire to become heir of God's promise. And Esau's dismissal of it as something of no value. One person I read put it this way. He says, though modern readers of the Bible might not appreciate this as they should, what, what would have been clear to the original audience in Moses' day is that Jacob cared about the birthright and the blessing. And so he cared about the covenant, he cared about the covenant itself while Esau did not. Strange as it may seem to us, as we view this scene from such a, a great temporal and cultural difference, distance, the writer says, any early reader or hearer of this story would have drawn the obvious conclusion that Jacob believed and Esau did not. You would have had to have been an Israelite, he says, to fully appreciate the shocking nature of Esau's utter indifference to the promise of Yahweh to be his God and the God of his children. The fact is that Esau didn't care about God's promise. He didn't care about the calling he had as a son of the covenant. And that, of course, means that he had no real love or reference for the God of the covenant either. On the other hand, Jacob believed in the covenant of God's promised salvation, and he wanted to see that promise fulfilled in his own life. And even though his faith was not perfect, any more than his grandfather Abraham's faith was perfect, he went and did everything he could to secure it for himself.
which is why I say faith desires to become an heir to God's promise and receive his blessing. Here's the question for you and for me. Do you have that faith? Have you come to realize that like Jacob and like Esau, you are unworthy of God's favor and his grace? God has no grandchildren. We are not automatically in on his salvation because of our family heritage or because of our virtuous living. No, the only way we become children of Almighty God is through faith in his promise, which he has given to us in Jesus Christ. And just as we have heard sung from us this morning, that came to us via the cross, where there the Son of God was lifted up and crucified in the place of sinners, just like you and me. And God calls us to faith in his promise. And that's what leads me then to my sermon in the sentence this morning, which is this. By his sovereign grace, God will fulfill his promise and redeem sinners whose faith is in him. In Jesus, God's promise to Abraham was ultimately fulfilled. And by placing our faith in Christ, we claim our part of the promise. And by faith in Christ, as the scriptures teach, we become children of God. That is what this text teaches us. And it's my prayer this morning that as we, as we study and as we consider it, that we will become even more convinced of God's great, great grace that he has extended to us. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. And it's for the people of God.